Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. Even with all I know and have learned deep diving into grief, it can still be hard showing up for loved ones who are grieving. So I'm really excited to have discovered Grief Warrior. Sending a Grief Warrior box is a way that friends and loved ones can say, I'm thinking of you and acknowledging your grief. Each box has thoughtfully chosen items, including a journal, anxiety relief essential oil, and so much more. My favorites are the In Morning Badge, letting others know you're in pain without having to say so, and the Ways to Help Notepad, which simplifies asking for help with tasks like laundry or errands without feeling weird for asking for help. The Grief Warrior Box provides healing and comfort, and most importantly, it's a communication from you. Head over to agriefwarrior.com and enter GGG20 for 20% off your purchase of a Grief Warrior Box. Check our show notes for more info on Grief Warrior. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Just want to give you a heads up that this next episode begins with a detailed description of an act of gun violence. In 1976, Mary Zinkin had just graduated from college. One night that summer, she stopped at a convenience store to grab a few items. She had just gotten back in the driver's seat of her car when she was struck in the head by a gunshot. Very much in shock, she suddenly realized there was a man standing right in front of her car with a sawed-off shotgun. She was able to pull away, and as she did so, was shot twice more, once in the neck and once in the shoulder. Despite her injuries and shock, Mary managed to make it the few blocks home. Her neighbors heard her screaming, I've been shot, I've been shot. They found her and brought her to the hospital. At only 22 years of age, Mary worried that she would be disfigured and brain damaged. In the ER, doctors spent the night removing pellets and glass from her eye, face, head, and body. Because the gun was loaded with lead bird shot and the windshield slowed down the impact, Mary is a survivor. What followed for Mary was a long road to recovery with PTSD and depression. In her path to healing, Mary was drawn to Buddhist meditation. She went on to earn a PhD in conflict resolution and trained as a Buddhist chaplain later establishing the Center for Trauma Support Services. Here, she developed a unique trauma program where Mary facilitates conversations between crime victims and their perpetrators. When apartheid ended in the 1990s, I was inspired. People who'd been mistreated had the opportunity to face their oppressors and share their experience with South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was restorative justice, acknowledging a victim's pain and humanity. Imagine the understanding and healing that could arise on both sides if victims and their perpetrators could share and listen to one another in our own justice system. 
As humans, I believe that facing our trauma is an essential step in moving forward. Our questions can plague us, leaving us with unresolved feelings. We deserve an opportunity to ask, why did you do this? What led you to this place? Why me? I have always wanted to be able to have a conversation with the person who did this because I am left with unanswered questions and no real understanding of what was happening and why he was trying to kill people that night. So I, I want to know, like, what happened? Because um, to my understanding, he wasn't someone who'd had a history of criminal activity or violence. It was, you know, so I had to make up in my own mind an explanation for what happened. So that is a way of feeling unresolved right. about what happened. And so the, so I would want to ask questions. I would want to tell him what that evening resulted in in my life and throughout my life. I'd want to uh, be assured that he never did that again to anybody else. Um, and I have, I, have no, I have no information to tell me that that's the case. And in fact, I have some information that, that could be true that he was like had a psychotic break and just ended up um, spending some periods of time um, in mental institutions and then getting released and then doing it again and then getting released and then doing it again. Doing it again. Doing Shooting it. people. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't know that, I mean, the information I have is that he never did actually kill anybody. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah. And, I mean, we have so many examples of people who are not mentally stable being able to get guns and shoot people. It's like we have have them all the time. And that, to me, is another crime that, you know, as a country, we have not figured out how to make sure that that doesn't happen. People's quick access to guns. Yes. But in your experience, was PTSD even? No. So this all happened before PTSD was a diagnosis. That didn't become a diagnosis until 1981. So I really suffered for uh, 19 years, actually, just doing my best to get through a day. I moved from Sacramento, where it happened, um, to Portland. Just worked and had, you know, nightmares and was very anxious, very depressed, you know, had lots of the symptoms of PTSD without knowing that that's what was happening um, at all. And I just thought that that's what life was like now. And this was going to be the way I lived for the rest of my life. And then after about seven years, actually, which was the, uh, I heard, I actually heard this voice that said, you're alive. And it scared me because I was like, really? I mean, I had felt dead, literally. So that started a whole journey of healing for me that didn't result in me actually finding a therapist that knew anything about PTSD. That took longer. Yeah. And in my first, you know, session with her, just hearing those words was so helpful. Like, oh, there's an explanation for why I can't sleep at night and why I'm so anxious and why I can't go to the, you know, fireworks anymore. And But surely part of you knew why that was, right? Not really. Really? No. I mean, I just thought this is just life now. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't, and I had no way of believing or understanding that it could be any different or that it would ever be different. So that's really what therapy changed for you was it didn't have to be like this always. Right. So the voice, I'm curious about that voice. Where did that voice come from? (laughs) Well, I actually believe that voice is in all of us. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a voice of wisdom. Yeah. That if we are fortunate enough to hear, guides us in our life. And um, I have been fortunate to hear that voice many times. Innately, just had trust of that voice. Mm. Yeah. And continue to, as I continue to hear various messages throughout my life. Was it at this point that you realized as you're getting help and seeing that there would be an, you know, a way through? At what point did you realize there was such a lack of support for for you and what you'd been mm-hmm. through? Because I think I remember when you first shared with me, even just how the police showed up at the hospital was just not very helpful the way mm-hmm. they were questioning you. And mm-hmm. I feel like it was a long time before I realized that there was a way through. I mean, I definitely have uh, was experiencing healing and transforming of the pain and suffering. But I would say that it's really just been in the last 10 years that I have been able to integrate that experience enough to, to be able to use it to serve others very specifically. I mean, I think it, that, that from my perspective, a broken heart creates an open heart. Mm. And so I, have, uh, I do have a very big capacity to care um, and always have. So yeah, in many ways, this, this horrific traumatic incident and crime not only illuminated like the purpose of my life, but also illuminated other experiences I'd had, other traumatic experiences mm-hmm. in my life that I was not aware of. Mm. It very much informs me to know that there's, because of my own experience of having so much untreated trauma, that there are many, many people who are walking our streets with untreated trauma. And I don't want them to have to experience the years and years of not understanding that, not being able to feel relief from that, and to know that there is healing and transformation, or there can be. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. So now you're aware that there's all these people that are kind of the walking wounded. Nobody really can see it, but you're very much aware of it. And and that led you to find your purpose in the work that you do. How'd you get there? I feel like every single experience I've had has brought me here. And I used to say this to my students, that you can look at my life and it it looks like a very well laid out plan, that this led to this, led to this, and that it was conscious and decisions. And it really wasn't like that. It really was much more following leads that I was getting 
uh, and just from that deep listening that led me to get a PhD. I never really intended to do that. I was, and graduate school for me actually was part of my healing path, being able to feel supported and affirmed. I mean, one of the, you know, what, what I know now, right from study and research and training about trauma is that being able to reestablish some sense of safety and control mm. is the first piece to be able to heal and recover. And, you know, as crazy as it may sound for me, graduate school was that. You know, my committee, my professors, you know, having the structure, feeling the nurturance of, of learning. I've always loved to learn. So I was learning. I was creating this PhD in conflict resolution that didn't exist. And so also being able to be creative, that was part of the healing journey and just feeling supported and still didn't know so much about the trauma. It was still years before I, I got treatment for the trauma, but it was part of the healing path. Without even realizing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, that's, I would say I, my ability to see my path is, you know, looking back, right? So after I sure. did get into therapy with a great woman who knew about trauma, she was able to tell me that actually my meditation practice that I had started like five years earlier, because again, this voice said, you need Buddhist meditation. I had like, really? Okay. Um, so that that was part, a very important part of calming my nervous system. Mm. And, and actually my first experience on the first 10-day meditation retreat I did was still to this day, such a visceral experience of safety, that the way the retreat was structured, that I was like, I had a place in this world and that nobody, because of the structure of the retreat, nobody could hurt you. It was my first experience of really being with people, feeling safe. And that got into the cells of my body so that by then by the time I got into therapy, we could draw on that. So it also helped me to see that there, and know from my own personal experience, and now again, knowing from research, there's no one way to heal from trauma. And that's part of the passion of just wanting there to be as many resources as mm -hmm. possible, because yeah. everybody's different, and everybody's journey is different, and their past is different, what the trauma exposure's been, how it's been in the body. It's just, we just are really at the beginning of learning about how much we need yeah. to be able to heal from trauma. Yeah. When did you know this was going to be your work? I mean, mm, it's one thing uh -huh. about, it's one thing to listen to what that voice inside is telling you you uh -huh. need to do uh -huh. for you. Right. But when did you realize you needed to do this for, for others? others? Yeah. So uh, because of my being a professor at Portland State Conflict Resolution Program, a woman, um, I was no longer, I had taken a break from teaching there. Uh, contacted me because she wanted to speak with the man who was responsible for her being paralyzed. Mm. And she contacted me. She had been referred to me as a mediator, which I was a mediator. Mm -hmm. And in my first conversation with her, I was like, I wanted to be able to help her. And I also knew this wasn't mediation. Like, how do you distinguish it from mediation? I mean, I think I understand, mm -hmm. but I'm just... So like bringing to... people who've been harmed together with the person who's done the harm from my perspective and experience, is different from mediation because it's not a problem to solve. It's not agreements to reach necessarily. Got it. And yeah. it's also the needs, while it's an environment that brings compassion and healing to 
both parties, so to speak. Right. The needs of the victim survivor come first. Got it. And in a mediation, they're equal. Got it. And they're not equal from the, in that moment, in that process. After the preparation with her and the preparation with him and the bringing them together, so this is in 2008, was the most one of the most powerful experiences I've had. It was incredibly healing for her and him. And I remember leaving that um, dialogue saying, so this is why I wasn't killed. This is why I'm here. I need to be able to create this opportunity for other people who, who want this. Not everybody does want that. But for any victim survivor who wants to be able to have a conversation with the person that hurt them, I want it. I want that. I, I want that for people. That's incredible. From that one experience, mm-hmm. how did you navigate how mm-hmm. to facilitate that mm-hmm. for others? So I had facilitated that drawing again on my experience as a mediator and then coupling that with there was the beginnings of the program in Oregon. We do have a facilitated dialogue program through the Department of Corrections, and that had started in 2004, and so I contacted them. So I, I, I was matching what I was doing with the guidelines for that program. And what does that program look like more? I'm a volunteer with that program as well mm-hmm. and facilitate dialogues through the uh, Department of Corrections. The stipulation there is that the person who did the harm has to be incarcerated. Okay. So it's victim-initiated, and the person has to be in prison. After facilitating that, that first dialogue, was on a meditation retreat and heard the voice come and say, you need to be a Buddhist chaplain, which had not really been something that I'd thought of. Uh Um, And I was in uh, New Mexico where there was this new Buddhist chaplaincy program, so I did that. And it was through that program that I, and training, because since I already had academic uh, degrees, I knew I didn't need that, and yet I felt like I still needed something I wasn't quite sure. And now looking back, what I see is that during that chaplaincy program, I received more healing for, for my own violence that I've experienced and then learned uh, learned this particular model of the community resiliency model of the Trauma Resource Institute, which is uh, a ground of the work that I do, as well as I did a whole study on facilitated dialogue. Through the Buddhist chaplaincy chaplaincy. program. Oh, incredible. Yeah, there was a final project you needed to do. And actually, the seeds for the Center for Trauma Support Services really, I mean, that's where they were planted. So it was after that chaplaincy program, which I finished in 2012, that I knew I wanted to do something to help bring, amplify the voice of victims of crime, facilitate dialogues, um, and bring additional resources for healing trauma. I didn't know what that would look like. I didn't know how. I just knew that. Your input matters. If you have thoughts on this episode, check out the show notes to find out how to contact us. We'd love your feedback, suggestions, or just a thumbs up. feel like it's a continuation of my own healing mm-hmm. since I personally can't, ex- you know, or at least haven't been able to, to this point, experience it. When I see other people 
being able to communicate what they need and say what they need and hear what they need and move forward in their lives in the way that I have seen people on both sides, both the person who did the harm as well as the person who was harmed, be better off because of it, Mm. then it brings healing to my own heart and my own emptiness of not being able to experience it personally. And at the same time, then just so grateful, literally just so grateful to be able to provide that opportunity for other people and hear and see and witness their lives transformed as a result. I'm so curious, like to be a fly on the wall would be incredible. And I I, I know this is such an intimate experience because it's just you the victim and the perpetrator, right? And sometimes some support people. Oh, there are. Okay. There can be. They they witness, they don't participate. Right. And I was thinking about, well, the only thing I can think of with truth and reconciliation is like, I, I think about that in South Africa when I grew up and watching that. But that was very much amplified. I mean, that was visible. But anyone could watch that. Mm-hmm. And And as you just mentioned, like, just having witnesses mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. makes it so much more powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something I'm a big believer in with grief is that you need to have witnesses to your grief mm-hmm. to be able to heal with it. But, you know, I can't peek in on <laughs> on one of your one of your sessions. I'm just wondering if you can share like, you know, without getting specific about anybody in particular. In one case after for the victim survivor after being able to experience that process, they were able to really figure out what they wanted to do. Like like what had happened to them was not as like front burner. And they were able to, you know, go back to school and have a whole different career. So not being able to confront these questions about why this happened really seizes them up. It can. Yeah, and it like can keep because there can't be any movement. It's like you're just kind of stuck with whatever your assumption is, whatever information you have, very often misinformation. So in another case, the language was, I'm just lighter now. I'm just Mm -hmm. not carrying this in the same way. I now have these answers that I've been wanting, you know, for all these years. So there is a way of being able to move, you know, just move and not carry it with you in the same way. Yeah, there's a reason why we call it baggage. Yeah. Right? Right. Because it's heavy. It is heavy. Yeah. And so it's pretty amazing that getting to have this conversation or getting these questions answered. Mm -hmm. Because they can be answered in other than a conversation too. And I have facilitated that as well, like through just email exchange, letter exchange, or even just being the intermediary. So... I mean, that's a really important piece, too, is, I mean, that's the victim advocacy part of of what I do is to really listen to what victims and survivors need and want, which may or may not match what we have available for them through our restorative justice, criminal justice systems. And to be able to, you know, even help a, a person identify what would feel like justice to me and then to help try and see if I can somehow facilitate that. And in one case, a person wanted some answers, but didn't want to have a conversation. Oh, sure. You know, so it's like, 
really one of my passions is to again ampl- amplify those needs and and be able to hear the voices of victims and survivors to inform what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're offering as opposed to saying this is what justice is what we you know this menu that we have for you that's that's the kind of justice you can have so how do you see this growing like do you see this mm-hmm. becoming a bigger part of the toolkit for victims and survivors, this dialogue or this mm. exactly what it is that you do, mm. providing this opportunity for victims to mm-hmm. get answers mm-hmm. from the person responsible. Yes. I hope so. Let's put it that way. I hope so. I hope that the more, you know, there is a movement of really listening, it's getting a stronger um, presence to recognize the importance of listening to victims and survivors and what they need in terms of healing, in terms of trauma resources, in terms of what does justice look like and recognizing that we can't really incarcerate our way into safety. You know, there are some active movements in our country that are really amplifying those voices. And I'm just doing my part here in Portland. Uh, What are some of the others? Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice in California, Mm -hmm. doing really amazing work and spreading throughout the the country to help survivors heal and have their voices be heard for what would be justice and what does bring healing and increasing the amount of funding for resources for victims and survivors, which from my perspective is, you know, I mean, that's one of the things that keeps me up at night, knowing that Right now, there are people that get harmed that are not seen, are not heard, don't get attention unless they know about it, resources or if the case does get prosecuted and they you know, get referred by the district attorney's office. But the fact that we're not, as a culture, as a society, set up that at the time of harm, there's an immediate response in the community that says, you know, we want to help take care of you. The, the response is all focused on who did the harm, trying right. to find the person who did the harm, apprehending, prosecuting. And that's like what you're saying, like over-incarcerating. And we know that we have a problem in this country with the um, very for-profit criminal justice. I don't even know if I if it should it's just the, um, the incarceration system, <laughs> right? Right. And so when you say not to over-incarcerate your way through this, like if we could, I'm like, how do you fund this? Do you move all that money to supporting victims and or? And supporting the people who are doing the harm to to get the kind of treatment, help, support they need so that they're not going to do that again. I mean, that's one of the things that I hear, feel personally and hear consistently that where, you know, the people that have been harmed in the system that's supposedly bringing safety are joined, which is that nobody wants the harm to continue. We just don't all agree on what we need in order for that not to happen. I know you're focused on victims, but do you have any great stories of of perpetrators that have had some great growth from being involved in this process? Oh, absolutely. Again, I think it happens for both. Being able to not carry, I mean— from my experience in communicating with people who've done harm, then that 
Because again, a prerequisite for doing a dialogue is that the person responsible needs to be responsible and accountable and not minimizing. Yeah. So they are greatly relieved to be able to feel like they're doing something to help the person that they harmed because they carry that, that pain yeah. of knowing that either, you know, if they've harmed them directly or if they've killed their loved one, they live with that. So it's also very helpful to feel like they've been able to do something to help that person. Yeah. And so they live better lives themselves. So where do you see your work going? And then what's next? (laughs) What's next is just getting support myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Funding would be awesome. Right now it's a, a, we're, you know, just definitely month to month getting through serving uh, with the trauma coaching that I do and trainings. I do training for organizations for individuals to not just learn about trauma-informed care, also understand about resiliency and bringing, you know, I, the the general way I describe the work is that I'm providing psychoeducation about trauma as well as wellness skills. And so also being able to bring that to people who are working with people who have trauma because of their secondary trauma. So really, I just see, hopefully, the continuation and more involvement and being able to have more people involved so that I can provide more services. We're just, you know, a new nonprofit. So I kind of feel like we're just getting started. In looking at the work that you do, mm-hmm. I can tell that there's this piece about you in doing this work. Mm. And getting to do this work is both a gift you give and a gift you receive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really do feel and particularly in the last year as I've been able to do more of this work and more of what feels like my calling, there's a satisfaction and a, um, an alignment of, of just, I mean, I have felt good about my work throughout my career. Now it's at a different level. It's really, it's so deep. It's just deep in my cells. It's deep in my being to feel so fortunate to have lived the life that I have, to have received the benefit of the healing resources that I have been able to receive and to do my part to offer that to other people and witness a woman who I have sat with through much, much suffering of her loved one being killed. And for the first time, and it's been, I don't know, not quite a year, maybe just a smile on her face and like, I'm feeling good. And she never really thought she would. So it's like to hold that, you know, and you can't tell people, oh, you're going to, you know, that's just like patronizing, right? It's like you have to be able to sit with people in the, in the pain, but hold deep inside that through that process, there will be another day that does not feel like this. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. 
Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.